Vipers New York City headquarters. I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. Joanna, what's going on? Zach, hi. Howdy. <laughs> um, yeah, so so what are you both uh, what have you both been up to? What'd you get into over the week? What are you drinking? What you doing? I can jump in. Yeah, I mean, of I, course, you need to. <laughs> um, so I've, I've tried another uh, local bottled cocktail brand okay. called Wandering Barman. Interesting. Their La Nina Margarita, which is very good. Um, and then also I made a cocktail recipe from our website called The Summer Sunset. Nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Has a Reposado tequila, dry vermouth, I used some Cointreau and orange bitters, and that was really nice. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Zach, what about you? Well, um, I think probably the thing that was most exciting in the last week or so was uh, I'm a sort of adopted uh, Milwaukee Bucks fan. My wife is from Wisconsin, and as there is no uh, basketball team in Seattle anymore, uh, kind of been over the last few years on the on the bandwagon. And uh, as many of you listening know, they won the NBA championship recently. And The Greek freak. Didn't. Yes, indeed. Um, and so well, I actually been drinking Greek wine, although not because of that. Uh, but, just, but, but we actually did recently a podcast about Greek wine. And it kind of I've always loved Greek wine, but it kind of spurred my uh, interest in uh, revisiting some bottles that I have and all that. Uh, but actually, the thing I opened um, that I had bought my wife, as you all know, is pregnant. So we didn't drink very much to celebrate. But I did open a very special bottle of single malt uh, from Nika in Japan, which is their um, Teketsu, uh, Teketsuru, sorry, 17 year which was really awesome. Uh, I mean, I we've talked, I think, Adam, you and I, about some of the, you know, really aged whiskeys and whether mm-hmm. some of the high end of the category is really worth it. And I mean, I think it's totally reasonable to feel like a, a whiskey at that price point, you all can Google it if you're curious, <laughs> is uh, is truly worth it. I mean, that's a, you know, whatever. But um, it was really, really beautiful. And I think the thing mm-hmm. I love, and, and we've talked about it, I think, a little bit before, and um, I've talked about it in some Next Round episodes that we've done, is a thing I love about Single Malt is it's been such an interesting diffusion of of technology and, and you know, distilling um, sort of approach. And you see these really distinct um, styles and, and, and approaches to it and, and types of single malt whiskey now from, of course, Scotland and Ireland, but also obviously Japan, India, Indonesia, mm-hmm. here in the United States, lots of other places. And it's so cool to see that flourishing because it's a category that has, a, you know, has this incredible potential to showcase differences. And, you know, I don't want to talk about terroir and everything, but, but there's definitely some real distinctions there and especially in some places. So it's very cool to, to see it, especially because in Japan, it's very much something where the, the, the broad strokes of the technology were sort of imported, but, but they've in a lot of ways taken things their own direction. And, and so the, the spirits are often, you know, identifiably single malt whiskey, but not intended to be scotch analogs which is very cool like mm-hmm. i think it's much more exciting to say we're going to make we're going to use this approach to making whiskey but using what we have here as opposed to we're going to try and make something that tastes indistinguishable from scotch which unfortunately has happened some other places uh, including here in the u.s in some cases what about you adam what you've been having so i have been I, I got to have some tasty stuff last week so um the the coolest thing i did uh is i got to to taste a 43 year old talisker Ooh, it's that th- man, well, talk about scotch. Good, which was, pre- which was pretty awesome. But even cooler was I got to meet Matthew Reese. Sorry, <laughs> sorry Joanna. <laughs> uh, so jealous. What a was, guy. He was. He was really. I mean, <sighs> he's so dreamy. He was very <laughs> handsome. He recorded a video for Naomi because <laughs> she couldn't come. It was. It was just. It was the best. Um, but then, 
I did to over the weekend, uh, Friday night, I had an interesting, uh, experience that I am curious, like how both of you would react to. So basically, um, we went to the new photographisco museum in, mm-hmm. uh, in New York, uh, which is awesome. I totally encourage everyone to go. It's like on 22nd and park, this amazing like photography only museum that has come over from Sweden. So it's like they're, they're another location and they had really okay. cool exhibits. And then we were going to go to dinner and our, you know, like as now happens, you know, the friend lives in East village. We live in Brooklyn. Like she doesn't want to go to, you know, dinner in Brooklyn with us afterwards. We're like, okay, fine. We'll go to these village. So I was like looking for a place and I found this restaurant that I had not been to in a while. And remembered that it's like really well known for the burger I looked on their website and like, they're like, Oh, you know, free corkage fees on Wednesdays. And this was a Friday, obviously. So I decided oh, to okay. email and say, Hey, I saw that you do free corkage on Wednesdays. I'm assuming that means you have a corkage fee, uh, the rest of the week. Like if you do, what is it? And the actual, the owner wrote back and he was like, yeah, we do corkage fees. It's $45 for, um, you know, uh, 750 and 65 for a Magnum. Eh, not bad. Um, and I had this bottle that I brought back from Napa that I wanted to share with her. So we go to dinner. I bring the bottle. It was this incredible bottle. Uh, it was a Louis Martini, Louis Martini, like Howell Mountain. It was really cool. And uh, I pull out the bottle. I'm like, hi, you know, I just want to like be clear. We're going to, we're going to order some cocktails first, but we want to have this bottle along with dinner. And the waitress is like, uh, I'm, I'm really sorry. We don't allow people to bring them wine. I'm like, oh, well, I actually emailed the owner and he told me you have a cork. So we only do that Wednesdays. I was like, I actually emailed the owner and, you know, he told me that, you know, you guys do corkage and this is the price, whatever. And she's like, I need to go check. So she goes and I see her talk to the owner and she comes back over and she says, oh, well, he says that we actually only do, we do not allow corkage on Friday or Saturdays, but since you've already brought the wine, he'll make the exception. So he made me feel like really icky. Meanwhile, my email to him says I was coming on Friday night (laughs) and he wrote back that this was the prices. Like I literally pulled the email up for her not to be a dick, but to be like, like, this is why I'm here. You know, it was so weird. And so then like, and I was like, and by the way, like, can you do campus? (laughs) (laughs) And, but I felt it was just, it was like the weirdest feeling because then Naomi was like, well, what are we supposed to do? Like, I was like, honestly, I'm all for, you know, you know, wanting to buy one off the wine list, especially like in these times. But like, that is why I emailed ahead. And <laughs> yeah. Like, well, now, and it's not like it's some dude, some random person was like, yeah, that's great. It's the owner. Like it was the owner. should get on the same page, you know, with, with your staff on it that. Was, it was so weird. And then also like just the whole experience was bad. And I have a whole, you know, uh, editorial pitch. I mean, the food was oh. good <laughs> and the wine was great, but like just the, the whole staff and everything. It's again, like what we've been talking about, how I think, mm-hmm. you know, with these staffing issues. And I think also just some potentially owners not, you know, giving a shit anymore. Um, I feel like we're going to start seeing a, a lot of backlash against restaurants in the next like few weeks from consumers who are just like, I'm, I'm over this. Um, so that was, that was a great experience with the wine, but like really weird with the, uh, with the maitre d' or with the owner. But then on Saturday I did the first, th- I, I batched a bunch of, um, jungle birds and took them to a, a, a party that we had, uh, well, that I was invited to with Naomi's colleagues and I was invited because they knew I'd make the cocktails. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that was fun. That was pretty fun though. Like I, I was like very proud of myself. I'd never batched. That's an, that's before. a great cocktail. I love that cocktail. It's such so a good much. cocktail. And I'd never batched it before. And I'm like, I'm going to do this all the time. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, so that was what I drank this weekend. Very so, cool. anyway, I, I want to make I want to make one oh, yeah. more comment about your corkage Please. story, which yeah, is, I need to, it also yeah, is a good reminder of the economics of scale, 
we when we closed uh, Dahlia Lounge, our corkage fee was twenty five dollars, and we got grief from people about that price, which is not the highest in Seattle by far, but is you know befitting our the stature of the restaurant. Uh, so yeah, any of my diners there who complained about the corkage fee, it could be a lot worse. You could be going to some restaurant in the East Village where they charge you forty five bucks and then give you a hard time. Yeah, like some burger yeah. joints charge you forty five dollars <laughs> for corkage. <laughs> I mean, I I like feel bad. I'm just gonna, it, the restaurant's called Virginia's. Okay, it's it's on like 11th or 12th. I wasn't gonna name it, but now I'm like, th- yeah, this is where it was. Gotcha. And it was just yeah, it was a very weird experience. Anyways, so some interesting uh, news to talk about this week that I think yeah. allows us to, to talk about a, a deeper uh, discussion. So we're recording this on a Thursday, uh, July 29th. So. On you know July 28th, news broke uh, on the Daily Beast first, and then in the New York Times after, and some other publications that Caleb Ganser, who's a pretty well-known sommelier in New York, may probably not that well-known throughout the rest of the country. Part of what we're going to talk about um, was arrested uh, for having committed arson. Um, he's the he's an owner and the beverage director of the company, but it turns out that over the past few months, uh, late at night, he had been setting fires to. Uh, the outdoor seating areas of other restaurants in the area uh, and was finally caught when he was caught on video uh, doing this, um, you know, a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to start by saying like, obviously we don't know why he did these things. Um, you know, we obviously, if there's a mental health issue there, we encourage anyone who knows anyone that's having mental health issues to, you know, please go talk to someone. Like this has been a really challenging time for everyone, especially people in the restaurant industry. Mm-hmm. But one of the things we, we did want to talk about with, with this situation is that in the breaking of this news, a lot of people, you know, referred to Caleb in their headlines, including the Times and the Daily Beast, as a celebrity sommelier. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, we talked about this a bunch internally, and you know, Joanna you and I and Zach have talked about this, you know, privately that this idea of celebrities in the drinks business is just really, really problematic. And it's problematic for a lot of reasons. It doesn't do the people who are named celebrities any favors and it doesn't do, you know, the drinking public any favors. Um, and there really is no basis for it. Yeah. Right. There, there, there truly aren't any celebrities in, in the drink space. And for me, like the way I define a celebrity is like, if I see them walking down the street, would I recognize them? And then would I, you know, potentially want to go up and talk to them or take a picture with them or whatever? Oh, I'm Matthew Reese. Yes. Yeah, right. so like, are they Matthew Reese? That's, right, exactly. that's a good like, question. Like, do I recognize them or does someone that I know recognize them? And then are they a big enough deal that I really want to go up and talk to them? And the only people that really exist as celebrities in our industry are chefs. And I would argue that only chefs on TV. Right. You can be yeah. a chef at a really well-known restaurant and I still don't think you're a celebrity, but you know, Eric Repair is a celebrity. Like if I saw him, I would feel like I had seen a celebrity and he's on TV. Like yeah. he's 100% the definition of what a celebrity is. I do, do. I think that chef at the trendiest, you know, restaurant in New York city right now is a, a quote unquote celebrity. Probably not. Like, you know, they, they may be well-regarded, but they're not a celebrity, right? Someone who makes the 40 under 40 list uh, in the legal profession, right? And gets a lot of great accolades in their industry is still not a celebrity, right? They may be well-regarded in their industry, but they're not a celebrity. And my take before I want to hear what both of you think about all this is, you know, when we when we label people as celebrities, I actually think it damages the way we, we come at the entire industry because those people wind up, first of all, getting an oversense over inflated sense of self-worth 
Yep. Secondly, they become the only ones that people use for specific campaigns. Like Zach, I was thinking about this this morning, like in going through COVID, I was thinking back at like the, the brands and the, the regions that were like using spokespeople. And there was like four or five people in the wine industry that I think were used over and over and over sure. again. And like, there's a lot more really well qualified people in wine than that. And the yep. same thing was happening in cocktails. I, Cause I, I want to make this discussion, obviously like sort of we're using the hook of Caleb, but like, I think this is all beverage. You know, Joanna, you and I talked about how I went to a restaurant recently and like the bartender was like, well, you know, a celebrity bartender owns this place. And I'm like, celebrity bartender? What do you mean? You mean like, there's who? who? Like, I, I don't even know who this person is. I don't even know how to say their name. So like, let's, <laughs> let's be clear. Um, you know, so I think that there's, I think all of this is, is really bad and we just need to stop. Like, you know, and media like us probably, you know, needs to stop. We need mm-hmm. to sort of, we're going to obviously do awards and things. Everyone does that. We have a next wave of awards coming up in October, <laughs> but as best we can, like we're providing recognition, you know, we want to shine light on people to give them great recognition, but not if it, you know, but, but we need to be very careful about trying to create celebrities. Cause I think yeah. it's just not good. And I'm going to stop talking and let you guys talk. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I agree that it's, it's important to, like you said, spotlight people for their contributions or for the things that they're doing for the industry or to propel the industry forward or innovations or what have you. Um, but I think that the problem lies with like, yeah, exactly. Like publications calling them celebrities or famed or whatever other word that, um, like you said, in- inflates their <laughs> sense of self-worth, I guess. And, and then also, gives them more power to wield in the name of fame. And I think ultimately, and and we've seen, certainly seen this in the food world, power to exploit. Yeah. And, and then exploiting other individuals with that power too. And I think that's the issue. (laughs) Well, yes, it's one of the issues, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, I think that that you're right, Joanna, and that, that the, the power dynamic and imbalance it creates is one real negative to this kind of, you know, these kind of accolades and this kind of um, attempt, you know, and it's, and it's not just media, you know, it's, it's, it's to some extent uh, the public too. I mean, I think the difference between a little bit in between the the comparison you made towards, you know, someone in the legal profession or something that's not as public facing is, yeah, there there can be people who can be viewed in in their own industry as leaders, pioneers, up and comers, whatever. But to me, you know, a, a largely positive, but but with some negative things that has happened culturally is we care a lot more about the food we eat and the things we drink, and we care about the quality of them. We care about who made them. In some cases, just broadly societally. And that does mean, though, that, of course, some people are going to be much more famous. You know, there, there's a long history of celebrity chefs in France, right, where dining and in Italy and other places where dining has long for much longer been considered a sort of, you know, a cultural pursuit, not just the thing you do because you're hungry. And here it's taken a lot longer to, to get to that point, And we've done it quickly and in a slapdash fashion. And, and obviously we can name many, many, many people almost exclusively men, but not entirely, who have become famed and after their fame has be has grown, uh, either the shit they did before they were famous or the shit they've done since they were famous or both has proven to be, you know, pretty horrible. And the same is true with drinks, obviously, whatever the whatever those things might be. 
but it's I, I think a little unavoidable to say that there are you know there's always going to be some higher profile people in these professions when there's when the public's eye is on it. I mean, we don't just do this podcast for us. We don't just do this podcast for people who work in the trade. We have lots of people who are just interested in drinks who listen. And so there's there's obviously audience for this kind of things. I mean, that's why Vinepair exists. And so so I think it's important that we that we think about two things here. One is that some amount of this is just unavoidable. And if Caleb Ganser had been a civil engineer who happened to light some fires, none of us would know. And so I don't know that it's necessarily the case that it's always easy to say, oh, and I don't think it's what we were saying. I want to be clear, but I think it's 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 tempting for some people to say, oh, it's because he was in the public eye or so-and-so was was famous. That may be true, but it also, I think, sometimes lets those individuals off the hook a little bit for their own behavior. It's also true that, like I said, I think it is to some extent unavoidable. I mean, for us to talk about the drinks industry, to write about the drinks industry, we have to talk to people who work in the industry. And some of those people are going to be people at, you know, more prominent restaurants. They're going to be people who are more successful in certain ways. And obviously, it's important, as always, that we, and I think we do a really good job of this, both on the podcast and on the site in general, and talking to a wide range of voices, people who are not famous people who are all over the country all over the world people who who've you know had a great deal of success and people who are hoping to have success but you know there is a there is an inescapable nature to to the fact that some people because of this category rising in public prominence those people will rise in prominence along with it what's important is that we not and I think we are doing a better job of this slowly and painfully we do not let that prominence and success cover up for all of the bad things that they might do. In fact, that provides, it it is more incumbent upon us to pay attention to what these people are doing and to be, you know, to, to watch them closely, to make sure that if the people we are holding up in this industry are gaining stature and elevated positions because of that attention, that they live up to it. I mean, that's, I think what it comes down to. I mean, I, I, I agree somewhat with what you're saying in terms of the like, you know, the the, the prominence, but I would argue like in terms of why this was covered, it was covered because it was a, at the end of the day, he's a restaurant owner and it's a restaurant owner lighting other restaurant owners property on fire, literally doing damage, well, sure. you know, and especially when he was a restaurant owner that was very vocal, very early on in the pandemic about how restaurants were not getting any support. Right. And how no one was helping. And, you know, there was all this need for customers, et cetera. So then to, 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 you know, see someone do that, it would be the same as if, you know, we, we would cover the person who like did this regardless, right. If, if they are the local sandwich shop or, you know, the, the bodega, we would cover it. Um, but I think that like in the idea of celebrity, what's problematic for me is that, I completely understand what you're saying about um, chefs. I do think that like there are celebrity. So I did say earlier that there are celebrity chefs. I really only think you're a celebrity chef if you're on TV. I guess that's not totally true if you do, if you go back and you look at, as you're saying, you know, the, the culture in France and Italy that has somewhat come here. And there are some pretty prominent chefs who've really never been on television that we would still consider celebrities. Um you know, I, I, I would still say I probably wouldn't recognize them or be that intimidated by them. Like, I think if I, if I met, met Eric Repair, I'd be a little intimidated in the same way that, like, I was when I met Matthew Reese, right? It was like, oh, my God, like, I've seen you before. Like, I think if I got to meet someone who's just pretty highly regarded but doesn't, he doesn't have a personality that I've, I've encountered, I might be yeah. a little more chill. 
Um, <laughs> but my issue with like on the drink space is that I, I really don't think there's a, a major a lot of consumers that are aware of who these people are. Oh, names, I agree. You know, and I think it's 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 a prominence inside of a small bubble, but that then, you know, I guess the way that that bubble reinforces these people, it makes yeah. them think that everyone outside the bubble also knows who they are and makes them act like everyone outside the bubble also knows who they are. And that's what I think is problematic, right? Is that actually no, like no one knows who you are. And at the end of the day, to most people, if you are still working on the floor or whatever, when you come to the table, you're just the person that's going to help them have a better time at dinner. Like, right. We only think it's problematic if it's like you're a jerk as a result or you do bad things as a result of, of this feeling. Exactly. And that's where it bothers me. But like, I think it's important to note that like the men who are featured in the Psalm film, like, I don't know that you would call them celebrities exactly, but like they were in a movie that a fair number of people saw. And I'm sure there are people who see them on the, saw them on the street, especially shortly after and stopped them. And like, we've talked about the court of master sommeliers and their many issues before on the podcast. We can go there again if we want. I think that it's, it's yes, there isn't quite the same cachet with celebrity sommeliers or bartenders as there are with say chefs in some cases. Again, we, as a recent podcast episode discussed, you don't see a lot of (laughs) drinks focused television shows out there. So, so again, you know, that is true, but I think it's, it's, you know, what we're talking about is, is both maybe, you know, curating, um, (laughs) but also like, but also, you know, stature and prominence within the industry, because so much of this is about, you know, it's not that Caleb was going to get stopped by people on the street being like, oh my God, are you Caleb Ganser? Like, can I get your autograph? But it's that, as you said at the beginning, Adam, here was a guy who was, I mean, he came on our podcast as a representative of the Wines of Roussillon because he was a well-known and respected sommelier who could talk about the region and and both knowledgeably and lend it some shine, right? And that's not to knock anyone involved in that. I mean, we, you know, it was an interesting conversation and and I don't doubt that Caleb knows a lot about the wines of Roussillon. But the point is like, it's more what you're saying, what you said before, Adam, where, where it becomes a sort of reinforcing thing and the same people get put yeah. forward. And those people may not think, you know, may not think of themselves as hot shit broadly. Again, I don't think they think that everyone in America knows who they are. But within an industry, I think they get very used to a level of, acclaim, attention, deference, and special yeah, treatment. Right and yeah. that's to me, that to me is the 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 problem because it doesn't have, you know, it does not have to be a, a broad societal thing for those people to take that power, that prominence, and wield it in a variety of, you know, kind of unscrupulous to outright criminal mm-hmm. ways. And I, I, that is the thing that I think we have to be kind of vigilant against is, is, you know, if we are going to hold up people as, you know, noteworthy for, for what they do professionally, you know, that's one thing, but, but often that is, that becomes not just about the job they do, but the person themselves, understandably. And it's where so much of this, uh, so many of these problems start. Is is you know this these is people having as Joanna said you know sort of an, an inflated sense of themselves and and then and it becomes very difficult for the industry to 
to check them because totally. they're prominent. I, a thing I wanted to ask you both about, and then I, I maybe will share my thoughts too, is is something connected to this, which which you know, Adam, you mentioned before we started recording, and I think is is worth noting, which is as was the case with the court of master sommeliers for sure, and the master sommeliers who were accused of um, you know all kinds of sexual uh, assault, harassment, etc. Uh, it was true with the two different chefs in the Seattle area who are both James Beard Award winners who were accused of similar things um, and has been true in many cases is, you know, you, you, you people have it's, not, it's an open secret, right, within the industry, some of this stuff, you know, whether it's the specifics or, oh, this person has a drinking problem, this person has uh you know behavior problems person you know yells at their their cooks they throw things etc right and it's not until something like this comes out that people that any not until something like this happens i should say until people start speaking out about it and and i don't know that it's there's a good answer to like what can we do to maybe get some of this stuff out before people get hurt or you know crimes are committed per se but I'm curious, you know, what what are Joanna maybe for you? What do you what do you think about this? Like, how do you how do we, you know, keep some of this stuff from from just being kind of open secrets within the industry? Yeah, I mean, I think that there are two options, um, especially for somebody in like a publishing position. Um, you know, working for food publications in the past, there were certainly times where we heard that, or I have heard, or whatever we as the publication heard that very prominent chefs would were badly behaved in the kitchen, right? This is not not news anymore, but we would continue to work with them or publish stories about them because they were so, so, so prominent in food um, that if you didn't, you were you were missing something, right? So I think so I think in this instance it's like you can either as a publisher, if you hear these things or you know these things about individuals, especially well-regarded ones or highly regarded ones in the industry, you can choose not to publish things about them and continue to, you know, advance their career in that way. Or you could, can publish these things about them and report stories on it. But those are two obviously very uh, different decisions to make and and with different consequences as a brand. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree. It's kind of shitty to know that, you know, after the fact or after things like this with Caleb come to light to hear people saying they knew all these things about him before. Right. And I think, you know, so first of all, I mean, one thing, cause Zach, you talked for a while. I tried to break in, but <laughs> I wanted to say that I did agree with you. I, I actually think that, <laughs> The four people in the in the first Psalm movie, just the first, may be mm-hmm. the only true celebrity Psalms. I think it was probably the most, as you said, probably the most watched thing ever. Like I think my mom could identify them probably. Yeah, like I think if I asked like some like a, a friend who'd seen Psalm, like, do you know who Dustin Wilson is? They'd be like, yes, you know for sure. But I think in this regard, yeah, it's really so. Media is really crazy because you know we we obviously want to highlight as many people as possible who are new and young and fresh and not even young, but just doing different things. Uh, but then there also is a like, you know, well, oh my gosh, if, 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 if Vine Pear isn't writing about the hot new, you know, natural wine bar run by someone like Caleb, then, then are we even relevant? And I think every yeah. publication feels that right. For sure. And I think that it's, it's hard on the media side. We, we try to, to know as much, but also we, in all honesty, we don't know a lot of people, you know, the reason you are one of the hosts of this podcast, besides your really great voice for radio, <laughs> uh, Thanks, Adam. is that, you know, you, you have an insight to the industry that Joanna and I don't, 
right? We don't actually know a lot of these people. Like my, my only interactions with most people in the industry is interviewing them for stories. And I want to make one quick note on this real quick, Adam. Your, your sort of uh, stories about <laughs> horrific service experiences notwithstanding, like when people are in front of the press, they behave one way. When they're in front of who they consider their peers, they might behave a different way. Exactly. And so I've never, you know, and it's very unlikely that as journalists we can do, and I want to, I want to be clear, you know, we very much consider ourselves high quality journalists, but we can do as much background checking as possible. And we do, but it's still very difficult where sure. this can be prevented is amongst the peers. It's, yeah. you know, it's, it's people who do know this and that's where I think in all of these, it sadly comes out of the fact I, I've never heard, I've never heard a journalist say to me, Oh, I knew about this already. Cause if they did, that's a juicy fucking story and they would have written it. Right. Let's be clear. Like we, we are, you know, it's all about the lead for us. Right? We're about the story. So yeah. if we knew we'd write about it, but it's then, you know, other sources that I've had in the past, et cetera, who will like text me and say, Oh, you know, this person was a heavy drinker or, you know, I, I've been at parties where this person blacks out a lot and then breaks things. Or again, I'm not saying this is the person that we're talking about now. It's not it's just examples. I want to be clear about that. Um, but, you know, it's like, oh, man, I wish someone would have told me that when I was reporting the piece. <laughs> yeah. you know, I wish someone would, would, would have reached out and said, hey, see, you're featuring so-and-so. And just so you know, they're, they're a bad actor. And that doesn't seem to happen. And, I'm, and I don't know if it's out of fear, right? Because often the people that get covered are powerful, right? Mm-hmm. They, they run really amazing, you know, lists and restaurants and places that people just are dying to get into. And so maybe, you know, there's, there's a feeling in the industry like, well, if we tell on them that, you know, and – and it comes out that we were the leak and it doesn't get reported that all of a sudden we're going to you know, be blacklisted and not get access to, you know, all the stuff that they now have access to in the power position that they're in. Um, but I, you know, it, it would be great if it did happen more, it would be great if we were informed um, or if not, not that, you know, it doesn't have to be that, you know, you tip Joanna or I, <laughs> but that, <laughs> you know, that even the, the, these peers say something to them like, Hey, like, you know, I think your drinking's getting a little out of hand. Um, you know, you might want to talk to someone or, you know, I, I don't, you, you may regret this in, in a few years. Like, you know, like the, these late, late, late nights that, that happen when you're in the service industry, as you know, Zach, like, you know, can, can only often bring trouble. Like there's nothing wrong with just going home. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> yeah, no. And I, and I think that to, to add to that, I think one of the most challenging things for me, um, as I've grown as a professional and seen, you know, more and worked with more people and experienced things is like, you know, the restaurant industry, the beverage alcohol industry have generally been issue industries that are very permissive, very, you know, largely without, you know, kind of guidelines. And a lot of people who are in the space are there, whether they know it or not, because of that, like, like what attracts them to it in the first place is that, they can frankly get away with shit that they might not be able to get away with in other industries. And that isn't to say that many of them aren't deeply passionate and great and skilled. Obviously this is true. And to be honest, when I was in my early twenties, that's part of what attracted the, what attracted me to the industry. Like, like was that ability to have, you know, a, a workplace where I could, you know, tell my coworkers to go fuck themselves when I was angry at them and not necessarily get in trouble for it, you know, you had to maybe make it good later, but it wasn't the end of the world. And I think that 
the biggest change that is happening in this industry is we are realizing very slowly, very painfully that we are not exempt from the rules. And one of the things I've seen a little bit more of and would strongly, strongly, strongly encourage anyone who's listening to this who owns and operates a place, is a manager somewhere, is look really long and hard into third-party human resource um, options. Because one of the biggest problems we see in this uh, space in general is sometimes someone does bring it up, right? They mention it to the person or they mention it to another manager or to the HR person. But in small and medium-sized restaurant companies and even in big restaurant companies, you know, the HR person is really like, if they're, if they're internally maintained, sometimes like, you know, their, their biggest focus is on protecting the company and, and, you know, whatever that is what it is. And, and I think when you have third parties involved, it allows for people to feel a little bit more free to, to speak their mind, to talk about what they may or may not see uh, or experience or feel. And it allows for there to be a level, a layer between the employee, the, person whom they are, you know, reporting something about and a a buffer that you just need to, to, for these systems to really work. And so I, you know, I think it's, you're right, both of you, that, that it needs to be on, you know, people within the space to, to speak out when it's appropriate, to talk maybe privately to people when it's appropriate, but it's also about putting systems in place that, that take, that don't require, so that it no longer requires extraordinary action by, by people who have been, victimized or witnesses or whatever so that they these these stories can get out and people can, can feel be held safe accountable doing for their so. actions. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <sighs> it's, a it's crazy, issue. guys. <laughs> I know it's crazy. Yeah. I mean, look, there's a lot to unpack here. I think there's, you know, what we seem to all sort of agree on is this idea of some people having more notoriety than than others uh, and therefore sort of, you know, positioning them as a, you know, one of the more important people in the industry is problematic in a lot of ways. Um, And the more we can do to try to limit that, right, to have more than a few people as spokespeople, you know, it's, you know, and especially in New York, right? Like, I can't tell you how many times I'll talk to a brand or whatever, and they'll, they'll want to do sort of an event with us. And they'll be like, can you get this person, this person? And it's always the same, like four or five people you know, sort of to try to expand who we're having, you know, who, who we think is important, I think will just be beneficial to everyone. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, gosh, on another level too, like to, to try to be aware of people who seem to have mental health problems, who, who seem to be struggling and try to get them help. And then to also be willing, you know, to speak out against people who exhibit bad behavior and seem to exhibit that behavior you know, with no real feeling of reper- of, of regret or remorse, mm-hmm. right? Those yeah. are those are things that we got to call out as much as possible. Absolutely. Well, Joanna, Zach, this has been a really interesting conversation. Um, you know, and I want to say too, like we we're, our thoughts are out to the restaurants that have been affected by by what's happened, um, and we're hoping that they're able to cover it. It's been a terrible year, and. Um, you know, a lot of people are under a lot of strain and a lot of pressure. And, um, you know, I think it's a good reminder that the effects of COVID are not over and that, you know, we need to be really aware of that and try to be as supportive as possible. And yeah, thank you both so much for a great conversation again. I'll talk to you both next week. Thanks. Sounds great. 
Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my Vine Pair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping me make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, Vine Pair Tasting Director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the Vine Pair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.